0: In this podcast, Don Cattle talks about public sector and jobs in the post-Big Data world. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us an amazing guest. So today we have with us Donald Cattle. He's a professor at Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at University of Texas Austin. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Walker Alliance and Brookings Institute. Kettle is the author of author or editor of numerous books, including Can Government Earn Our Trust, Little Bites of Big Data for Public Policy, The Politics of Administrative uh, Process, and three of his books have received uh, and, and many more, and three of his books have received national best. Uh, book awards the transformation of government um, and um, and system under stress homeland security and American politics and escaping jurassic government how to recover America's lost commitment to competence he has received three lifetime achievement awards and uh, The American political sciences associations John Goss award the Warner uh, W. Stockburger achievement award uh, of the International Public Management Association and the Donald C stone award of American Society for Public Administration for significant contribution to the field of intergovernmental relations. Kettle holds a PhD in political science from Yale University. Uh, prior to his appointment at the University of Maryland, he taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, uh, University of Virginia, Vanderbilt, and University of Wisconsin Medicine. He is a fellow of Phi Beta Kappa and National uh, Academy of Public Administration. He has appeared frequently in the national and international media, including NPR, Fox News Channel, Good Morning America, ABC Worldwide News uh, Tonight, in NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News, CNN's uh, Anderson Cooper 360, and The Situation Room, The Huffington Post, as well as Public Television's News Hour and the BBC. kettle is a shareholder and uh, of the Green Bay Packers, uh, along with his <laughs> wife, Sue. That's a fascinating uh, thing to add to the bio. <laughs> So congratulations on that
1: <laughs> thank you very much
0: so um okay so let's let's talk about um and by the way uh, don welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for agreeing to uh, talk to us about such an important topic impacting um, as we were talking before the podcast about uh, about data and 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 jobs and and this landscape so i do appreciate you stepping up and and helping with the conversation
1: it's great to be with you here today and I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's hard to find anything that is a hotter issue right now, but it's one of those things where people talk a lot about but getting to the bottom it turns out to be pretty hard sometimes.
0: That is true. So let's let's talk about your journey. Like what what brought you to the the public policy landscape? Like if you can walk us through through your past and and and, and that will be really really helpful.
1: Sure. I mean, I've spent a good chunk of my career essentially trying to figure out why too often government programs don't work and what we can do to try to make them work better and so a large part of my efforts been to focus on that for example i i looked in depth about what happened after hurricane katrina and why government's response was was so problematic before that about what happened on 911 and about why it is that we weren't better prepared and i've been looking otherwise at everything from from making economic policy and balancing the budget to the really difficult problems now, for example, trying to figure out how to how to manage a system in immigration that is both consistent with our laws, but also that treats everybody in it fairly. So that those issues are things that I've been worried about for a really long time. I mean, what is it that we want government to do, and how can we make sure that when government does it, it actually works? And those, of course, turn out to be pretty tall orders sometimes.
0: Interesting. And um, tell us about your current role. Like, what do you do now?
1: Uh, Right now, I'm a professor at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm spending time in part with the Washington DC Center, where students have an opportunity not only to take courses in Washington, but also to have policy apprenticeships where they are working full-time with real-world, real-time problems as they're getting geared up for careers in the public service. But I'm also teaching in Austin as well and focusing on public management. And then on the side, working on lots of projects having to do with, on the one hand, trying to find ways of improving the government service and how to get the right people in the right places or the right jobs when it comes to hiring people for government. And I'm also working right now on a book for Princeton University Press on the future of federalism, which is one of those things like data that shoots through everything of what we do.
0: Interesting. And um, I think one, one of your books that, that really sort of uh, uh, excites my sort of interest was little bites of uh, big data and and, and public policy. So can you walk us through the premise of the book? Like what? uh, Yeah. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair. Fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: I had a lot of fun writing this book, and it really is, it's a little book, it's only about 110 pages. And it's one of those books that I was really inspired by my students, both to not only write it, but also to try to figure out what ought to be in it. This is one of those things where they taught me a lot about the problems of data. And it's a case where I've learned a lot from them. And the basic problem is this, we have just an avalanche of data everywhere. But at the same time, there's a sense that why don't we make better use of the data that we've got? Why is it the data turn out too often not to inform our public policy decisions better? Uh, why is it that when people are trained to do policy analysis, they produce these, so these big, thick reports, and they send them in, and then turns out too often nothing happens? And so what's the problem here? What could we do to try to make things better? How can we try to communicate data better? And, and how, in particular, can we make better use of this new flood of big data coming from everywhere that could help especially improve the way the government operates. So it's an effort to try to figure out both what ought to work, what we can use to try to make things work better, and most especially to think about data as not, here's the answer to the problem, but data, here's a way of talking about what it is we need to talk about. It's really an effort to try to think about data as a system of communication and as the language we can use to solve problems.
0: Interesting. I think what what really fascinates me about um, data in public sector, because I think whenever I talk to, I was talking to one of the gentlemen from um, NASA, one of the gentlemen from NOAA, and I think one thing that I find fascinating in those conversation was how data-driven these organizations are, at the same time, how politically inclined these organizations are. Like they're every, so they're they're dependent on, on sort of Federal policies for their functioning, and now like in in my conversation when I talk to say um, a typical enterprise architecture, so they have one mission, they have they have been going at at that for quite a while, but now in in public sector um, there is an element of sort of diciness that might come every 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 now and then, and how can you build a stable architecture? when you know that you are you may it it may be flipped on and off anytime later on and so what's what's your thought on that
1: yeah that's a tough problem and i had a a professor way back when i was in graduate school who said we have all this analysis that we're trying to do but just remember he said as a kind of dose of humility that nobody needs necessarily to pay any attention to any of that we Mm. do all kinds of analysis we have all these data but when we have things that really cut to the heart of politics, it's really easy for people to say, look, I forget that. I know what the right answer is. And so the problem is that it's very easy, especially in government, to make policy decisions without paying any attention, anytime, anywhere, in any way to any kind of data. People know what the answer is. They know what the answer is. They're going to go with it. They know what they want to go with. They go with it. And it doesn't matter what the data say. But it turns out that uh, a lot of us think that we can do better. We can make better decisions if, in fact, we paid more attention to the data that we've got. And so the challenge is trying to figure out how, in a political world, you can collect and use data in a way that's persuasive to the people who are making the policy decisions. So the first part is a reminder and a sense of humility that for all the data that exists in- Nobody needs to use any of it if they're gonna make policy decisions. They can just make decisions about the data. If they can, then how to try to improve the data so that in fact it informs the decisions better, and then how to try to work it in, in a way that makes the the analysis and the information and the data useful to the people who are trying to make decisions. And, and the core of the problem is this. Too often the people who have the data, produce the data, write the reports, operate on the assumption, look, I've got it, here's my answer, here's my 30-page report, here's what it is that you ought to do, and they put it down on the table, give it to the policymaker, walk away, say, this this answers your problem. And the problem too often is that when you supply the data, it doesn't sometimes connect to the demand the policymakers have. And so the challenge is trying to understand that data has to be based on a balance of supply and demand. It has to be based on, here's what I know, and here's what I can share, On the other hand, here are the questions that you need to answer, and here's how my data can help you try to get at that. So it's a matter of balancing the supply of the data with the demand for it and finding a way to try to match things. And so often, when we try to solve problems and we have data and people don't seem to pay attention to it, it's the product of this mismatch of supply and demand. And the only way to solve it is for the people who are in the data business to pay far more attention, not only to what they know and what they can say, but to what it is that people are gonna be making decisions, need to know, want to know, will know, will act on, and it has to be based on their incentives as well as what it is that we think we know about what the answer to the problems might be.
0: Interesting, and um, from your vantage point, if if you look at how um, the role of government in in creating progressive public policies, from your vantage point, is, like, are there any role model government um, sort of frameworks that, that we could look at saying, okay, these guys have really figured out how to be progressive at the same point, use data and and define sort of public policy that, that are very progressive at the same point it, it adhere to the current political landscape. Um, do you have any such, any such models?
1: Yeah. And, and there are some good examples of this. And at the bottom of all of it is you've got people who are trying to solve problems, who find the data useful to try to do that. So if you look at uh, Martin O'Malley, who Mm. was first mayor of Baltimore and then Mm. governor of Maryland, he said, look, we want to try, for example, to to improve the way in which Baltimore works and we're going to do everything from housing to crime and build it on the basis of data that tell us what's happening, can allow us to diagnose the problems, say, here's a solution we're going to try, and we're going to come back next week and the week after that, the week after that to see if we've moved the needle. And he brought that to the state of Maryland, made real improvements there. And we've seen that spill over. I'm I'm sitting right now two blocks from the Chesapeake Bay. And there was a time when the bay was just in miserable shape. But now by using this technique, the Chesapeake Bay is actually in much better shape than it was before. And you can eat more safe, good oysters and crab out of the bay as a direct result of using these kinds of data-driven approaches to try to improve the quality of the water that might be in it. So we have that. New York City has done a lot, both from everything from from crime to the operation of parks, a lot of interesting things there. Chicago is doing some very interesting work, for example, on restaurant inspections, where they're they're looking at, at Yelp restaurant data. Hmm. Wow, what and what they're doing is they're looking at the reviews that people have of restaurants. You can't inspect every restaurant every day. And if you just do it randomly, you're going to miss problems. So they're using Yelp to determine what restaurants are having trouble and maybe where they need to send the inspectors and find ways of targeting their efforts in that way. So we see, especially at the local level, and especially at the state level, lots of use of data in improving the way that things work because it provides a way of connecting, here's what we want to do with what it is that's actually working.
0: Interesting. And I think um, I, I remember a um, couple of... Um months back or probably um, about a year or so that i was in a conversation between one of the state government official here locally in boston and um, one of the insurance company and um, and sort of one of the automaker and we were talking about um, data sharing and 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 there was there was a conversation around that hey this insurance guys they send sort of uh, adjusters to look at the house and whatever can they look at the roads and sort of update that so government can use the same data um, to sort of uh, there could be a lot of collaboration. If government is looking at the roads, they look at the houses and say these these are they see some tree or something, and there could be that collaboration. And it was it was uh, sort of um, mind boggling to see that there was no collaboration and there was no like everyone just shied away from the conversation that hey let's not talk about it. So from from your conversation from your um, uh, sort of uh, observing this space. What what do you think are the the big data opportunities uh, for public sectors that that they could be they could be using and and what's your thing that when when actually we will have we will see a lot more collaboration between these public sectors and these private sectors sharing data um, to ha- to sort of make life better for all of us. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website, firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, and we, we tend to think of big data more in terms of a big. That is, we've mm. got all this stuff out there and what can we do with it? And so we tend to think of big data in terms of just the volume of stuff. But I think in a lot of ways, what's much more interesting is, I've got data I collected for one purpose, what can I use to try to use it for some other purpose possibly as mm-hmm. well? And so, for example, to what degree can we uh, can we use information about the, 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 the temperature of roadways to try to figure out when to apply salt in the middle of storms? What can we do to try to look at the, 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 the flow of, uh, as they've looked at in Homeland Security, for example, mm-hmm. what, what kind of over-the-counter drugs are being sold? And- not too long after 9-11, there was a problem. How, how would we know whether or not there's a bioterror attack going on? Mm. And it turns out that one of the things you can do is you just track the sale of some over-the-counter medicines at drugstores. And if all of a sudden, for example, people have stomach distress and they're buying medication to try to treat it, and you've got a hotspot that starts popping up there, that tells you maybe you ought to go pay some attention to this. So it's the ability to be able to use data collected for one purpose— to try to solve problems that are popping up somewhere else. And in many ways, the most interesting information, the most interesting use of data, the most interesting application of big data isn't so much that it's big and that we have so much data. It's that Wait a minute, I've got really interesting data that I collected for one purpose that I can use for something else. And that gets to the question of data sharing and why it matters and why this question about open data turns out to be so important. Mm -hmm. The core of the problem is this, I've got a problem to solve. Where can I find information that would help me try to figure out how to do that? And in a lot of cases, the data may be there if I could just massage it in a different kind of way. And that's that's why the story about Chicago and Yelp restaurant reviews and restaurant inspections by city inspectors is so interesting because data collected for one purpose. Uh, mm. How good is my meal? To whether or not I've got a problem with the way a restaurants operating. Anyways, I hadn't thought about that. Let me put those data together. That sometimes is a way. To try to create a conversation that just simply would not have been possible if it weren't for data and especially big data. Mm,
0: interesting. interesting. So, um, if, if we talk about um, so from your, uh, your 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 public policy landscape, what are some of the um, some of the opportunities that you see are like still available to explore for for someone who's who's trying to figure? Like, what are some of the things that you could share?
1: Yeah, one of the things that's fascinating here is that uh, that we we've only begun to scratch the surface on this, Mm. and we've only begun to figure out how to use data more effectively to try to improve government programs in particular. But let me give just a couple of examples. Uh, One of my single favorite statistics about the entire federal government is that if you look at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and this is an agency that manages the Medicare program, which goes for health care for senior citizens, the Medicaid program, which is health care for lower income Americans, and Children's Health Insurance Program, which is health insurance for kids, put that all together, that's 25% of the entire federal budget. That, on the other hand, is being managed by 0.2% of all federal government employees. Think about that for a second. 0.2% of all federal employees, about 5,000 people, manage 25% of the entire federal budget well how's that going to happen well the only way that you can go through and find waste fraud and abuse in the program that you can eliminate improper payments is by using big data what you can do is say oh, wait a minute. there's a pattern of spending here in this particular town and you know what uh, this doesn't look right how can we try to understand how those patterns suggest possible patterns of fraud with somebody who set up business and looking at some of the stuff on the side and so by using big data, we can find ways not only of helping these 5,000 people get leverage over 25% of the entire federal budget, but also we can use it to try to manage the program better on the one side and root out fraud on the other. Uh, another story. Hmm. One of the things that we have as a, as a major concern in this country right now is opioid addiction. But one of the things that we know is that opioid addiction is not uniform across the country. There are some states, for example, uh, in New Hampshire and in West Virginia, where the rate of opioid addiction is far higher than in other states. Mm -hmm. And so the big question is, why? What is it that's going on in the handful of states that's leading to higher rates of addiction there than in other states? And if we can find ways of rooting that out, we can begin to understand what the root causes are and what it is that we can do to try to solve this problem, because one of the things that we've discovered already with opioid treatment and opioid addiction is when you tell people, well, don't, that doesn't work. If you tell doctors, don't prescribe as much, it helps just a little, but doesn't begin to get at the problem. If you tell people, I'm going to carry around a special injector. So if you see somebody who's got an opioid addiction problem and they're in the process, they've overdosed and you give a quick shot that brings them back, well, that's great too, but it doesn't get at the underlying problem. What we need to understand is what is it that's driving this phenomenon? And we have all this information out there, and we have the opportunity to use that information to try to find ways of solving what is a huge problem. So just a couple of examples, but the more you start scratching around, the more you see that crucial issues that we're trying to solve very often have strategies for solution rooted in data that clever analysts can find a way to get to the bottom of.
0: Interesting. interesting. I, think, I so, think so. You raise a very interesting point. So fascinating use cases, by the way, and then definitely it, it shows the the sort of the the magnitude of problem solving that could happen if if you if you do the analysis right. And I think in in, in my finding, and and obviously you you have the, you must be having the similar ex, uh, experience that we see a lot of analysis happening. We see a lot of like there's everything has data. Like data is exhaust nowadays, and anything you sort of you analyze you find a lot of use cases that might that might be useful and and then I think even in my experience I, I, I see a lot of businesses hiring a lot of con, like lot of uh, consulting companies get a lot of reports and what all they can do, but barely uh, anything gets done. So what what do you think is is, is, is the is the underlying cause? Why, why do we see so many reports being published and yet very few have been actually acted upon?
1: And the thing is this this happens not just in in the private sector but also happens in government as well and there's this enormous industry of people whose job it is to just to churn out reports and so the, the problem happens something like this i've, I've got a problem boy we got to spend some time looking at it let's mm-hmm. get some reports so people write lots of reports and then they write lots of reports and pile it up and then there are more reports and there are more reports but if it turns out that the problem essentially is one of of a supply of these data that are not connected with the demand for problem solving, then the stuff just doesn't get done. And on the other hand, if you say, look, we want to find out why it is that one out of every $10 spent on Medicare is an improper payment, how are you going to get to the bottom of a $60 billion problem? And Hmm. data with 5,000 people is the only way you can get at it. So the degree to which you can make the data analysis problem-driven, you create an audience for the solutions and an an audience for the results, and you create an eagerness to pick it up and use it, which then allows you to be able to move forward. The same thing is true in so many other places when you start looking at everything from uh, the condition of roads and bridges on the one side to the, the problems that we see with the treatment of immigrants. And mm. we want to try to understand what it is that's going on. You have to understand where it's going on. You have to understand what's happening. We had this fascinating thing that happened in the the most recent case where the, the Trump administration said we're going to separate kids from their families and we're going to send the kids around to hold them in custody while we figure out what to do with their parents. And the problem underlying all this was we had a the, the mayor of New York saying, I had no idea that we had kids coming mm. to New York. Well, all those information, all that information was available out there, but just people were not paying attention to it. Then they discovered, so what's going on here? And it turns out that you can use data to understand what's happening to these kids, where are they going, and the way, in particular, to use data on the one side and mapping on the other provides a way to try to create issues and pictures in ways that really make the story much more digestible, much more understandable much more persuasive, and then ultimately much more actionable. So the bottom line in all this is, what kind of problem do I need to solve? How can I solve it? And how can data help me do it? That's really the chain that we need to do as opposed to, well, here's a problem. Let's go do some studies. Let's pile more studies. And then maybe maybe read the studies, maybe not. But if it turns out that you don't answer the questions that people have, then the studies are just going to pile up and in the end not be used. Now, let me say one other thing that's important here, which is that uh, if it's only a reactive strategy in the process Mm -hmm. of data, then you run the risk of blinding yourself to the insights that otherwise Mm -hmm. might not be possible. And one of the things that is fascinating about the use of data is to create new insights of the sort that just otherwise would not be happening otherwise. Things that that you just wouldn't be thinking about unless you just gave yourself a little bit of room to go rooting around and exploring some of these problems. In Baltimore, for example, there was a, a problem of, in some inner city communities, of food deserts, people living yeah. in places where there just simply aren't grocery stores. And so how do you get at that? Well, it turns out that a group of analysts said, let's try to root around on this. Let's see what we can understand. So they, they took four different data sets and they layered them on top of each other Put them on a map. And it turns out that the instant that you did that, these hot spots of food deserts came jumping out of the map in a way that just wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And it creates an image, a vision, an analysis that you would otherwise not have been able to appreciate without the data. It's analysts rooting around and trying to understand and explore these things. And it also turns out that when you start looking at the food deserts, these were areas that were, in many cases, close to the areas where urban violence broke out a few years ago in Baltimore as well. And so the connection between food deserts and urban violence, which if you stop and think about it for a while, maybe makes some sense because people are living where they're living and not having access to food, good places for nutritious food, that's going to be connected with problems of poverty, going to be connected with problems of housing, be connected with problems of urban violence. But you can begin to use the data To paint a picture that otherwise might have escaped you because it allows you to make connections that that, that otherwise, in many cases, just simply wouldn't be obvious at all. So, two answers to your question. The first is use the data to try to answer the questions that people have, but at the same time, give yourself some license to go looking for problems that you didn't know that you had or connections among them that you might not have otherwise have seen, and use that as a way to try to just look at the world differently. And those are the two big things that I think data can really do incredibly well.
0: Interesting. And and what is uh, what what is your perspective on open data? Like, uh, if if you look at every government has sort of their own political um, sort of adherence, and they have their own strategies that they want to implement. And when we talk about open data, we're talking about transparency. We're talking about sort of more data driven and, and sort of more uh, visibility into what's going on. So can they go to like is is it really practical like in 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 your vantage point do you see uh, the future of public public policy and public sector or uh, public management using uh, more open data uh, frameworks and architectures or what's what's your thought on that we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website first friday fair .tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast.
1: Yeah, and the, the simple answer is yes, and of course, as you suggested, it turns out to be much harder than it mm. seems on the surface. Because The, the problem is this, uh, open data and full transparency is in principle something that, that everybody agrees mm. to. Do, don't you believe that your data ought to be open? Well, yes, of course. Don't you believe that anybody who wants to have access to it should? Well, yes, of course. But it turns out that it's far harder in practice than it is in theory. And the reason is a couple things. The first is just a practical one, that mm. every every data set that's collected is collected for a particular purpose. And the purpose for which it's collected may not fit the use that other people have for it. And so one of the problems is that you have this, this basic problem that, well, you can get access to the data, but it doesn't really quite answer the problems that you've got. Mm. The second thing is that the the, the, data, the data aren't just data they're just they're, they're organized they're in a framework they're in a spreadsheet, they're in a database and the, the the framework and the construction of those things isn't always something that's easy to try to connect. One of the big problems that we've got for example is that we have soldiers who were injured by IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan who then need health care from the Veterans administration. Mm-hmm. And the problem there is what? It's the, that you've got to find ways of actually demonstrating that somebody was injured by an IED. Then when they get through a Department of Veterans Affairs hospital, they have to be able to demonstrate that the injury that they have was connected to the injury that they suffered and connected to the battlefield. And it turns out the databases connecting the, the VA and the Department of Defense basic records on that one particular member of the armed forces try to be terrible to try to connect. Simply mm. because of the, the the construction of the databases and the fact that they are operating in different kinds of platforms, so that's a big problem in trying to find ways of making the systems connect with each other. There are privacy questions that are enormous. Mm. That mm. Uh, there may be lots and lots and lots of really interesting things that you might want to know, but the data might have been collected with the promise that mm. well, I'm, we're not going to share this with anybody, and so. I volunteer information on the understanding that it's going to be held confidential, but it turns out you're going to share it, you're going to give it to who? To mm. for what? And what's even worse is I'm going to give it to anybody to be used for anything. And that tends to have a chilling effect on the collection of data, and the willingness of people to try to create it. And it's often sometimes not always possible to understand where this is going to go. Uh, for example, going back to the immigration case. One of the things that's happening is that because the data system broke down originally, now they're in the process of trying to do DNA testing on some Mm. of the children to reunite them with their parents. And some immigrants' rights people are saying there may be a problem here because it may bring the kids back together again. But now you've got a database that you can use in the future to track people down into the future. And so maybe there are privacy questions at the core that. Mm-hmm. Are okay in the short run, but are difficult in the long run to have to try to deal with. So these privacy questions are really difficult to have to, to try to deal with. And then the the last piece, among many, many others, but the last piece is that there are just so many data and there's so much stuff. The question is, where do you go to find it? If there are there may be a data set out there that may help you solve a problem, where is it? How are you gonna find it? And uh, the Internet provides one way of trying to get at this, but it just turns out that just because the stuff is there doesn't mean you can actually see it. Mm. doesn't mean you can actually find it, it doesn't mean you can actually use it. And so the problem there is, uh, this, since we're at the early stages of this, trying to figure out how to try to make those connections in a way that the people who need to use the data can, can find it, get it, use it, and use it in a way that's consistent with a broader sense of the problems they're having to try to solve without putting individual privacy at risk in the meantime. One of the things that I think Americans have no sense of whatsoever is just how much stuff there is out there about each of us floating around. And I'm not just talking about Mm. credit card numbers and social security numbers, but increasingly what we watch on TV and about how that information is rolled into information to sell to advertisers, they're just, and plus all the, the, the transactions that happen on, online, what Facebook does with our data and Twitter and all the rest—the the amount of stuff out there is just stunning. And the ability for people to try to think about interesting ways to not only use the data but to monetize it in ways that people have never even imagined raises a constant collection of problems. And it's, it's really hard, in a policy sense, to run fast enough to keep up, to catch up, and to try—let alone to catch up, but to keep ahead.
0: Interesting, wow. so um, I think one more thing that that I was I was thinking about, um, uh, about about sort of from your health administration thought that hey 5000 people are responsible for twenty five percent of the federal spending. So that and, and even if we look at this administration, uh, so we are, we are sort of and even it, it, it has happened in the past as well that it's difficult to fill up jobs, like fill up every open vacancies that's out there and then that sort of it's pointing towards that a lot needs to get done with less and less people so in 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 that in that sort of mindset and also with with um, 5000 people managing 25 percent of the budget in in sort of medicare spending so what is your your take on use of say these data driven techniques and technologies in the future of um, public policy decision making like what would be so would you think that we would be relying more on data and less on people going forward um, in sort of helping us um, a, a sort of a very neutral and, and, and consumer or at least public-centric uh, policy? So what's, what's your thought on that? Yeah,
1: that? That's just a great question. And uh, there's, there's just no doubt that this is happening. I just, just stop by saying, look, the, the, the question of whether or not this is going to occur is long since decided. The more mm-hmm. fundamental question is, what kind of impact is it going to have? And one of the things that uh, I've talked with some government officials, for example, about the connection between their work and the way that Apple Pay works. And if you think about this, uh, mm. this, this is a, a fascinating mini case study about what the future of financial management for everybody is going to look like. But especially mm-hmm. since the federal government spends so much money, it's the future of the federal government's financial management. So, so I go to Starbucks and I take my, my iPhone and I wave it over a detector that knows that I'm me and that my, uh, my Apple wallet is connected to my credit card. My credit card is connected to my checking account. My checking account is connected to the people who pay me and that is then connected backstream to a whole collection of financial transactions. And so the money that I get paid ends up being transferred to Starbucks through this system by swiping it over the top. Starbucks, on the other hand, mm. now knows that that it is me who's come in to buy a cup of coffee or a hot day mm. iced tea. It knows who I am. It knows what it is that my transaction is about, where the store is that, uh, that sold me the coffee, what time of day I came in, and it then collects the money and collects information about the transaction and then rolls that forward into its checking account into its payment system, and uses that to try to pay the people who supply everything from the paper cups to the coffee. Mm -hmm. What I've just described is a complete set of financial transactions without any human being doing anything except my swiping my iPhone over the top of the sensor. You think about that, that is going to transform the way in which all financial transactions happen, the way that auditing happens, the way that payment systems happen, the way that government contracts happen. Is this going to happen? Well, we don't have to worry about it. is it. It already has. And so the mm. question is now, how can we try to take advantage of it? Now, I used to have a, a dog, and we used to say, look, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. We, can, mm. we could fight, or you could sit there, and you'd be dragged outside, or you could just put your head out, uh, clip on your leash, we'll go out there and we'll do it the easy way. Uh, so these changes are coming. We can either do it by staying ahead, Doing it the easy way, thinking creatively about how to use it, or we can drag government kicking and streaming in the future and then try to figure out where that takes us. The, the hard way is expensive. It is not going to provide good services to citizens. It is going to make it harder for the people in government to be able to have good jobs. It's going to make it harder and short for all of what we want to have happen to happen. And so one of the things we need to do is to think about just how much government is going to change. And there are, depending on who you listen to, between 5 and 30 percent of all the jobs in government right now that can be at least partially automated in the future. They're going to be 30 to 40 percent of jobs that maybe can be either partially or possibly completely automated. That's before you get to issues of artificial intelligence that are going to come in as well to change the ways in which things work. Uh, 10 years from now, the projections are that the way in which we, we get food delivered, the way in which Tractor trailers operate, the way we're going to drive our cars, the way we're going to watch television, whether or not television is even going to be watched on television or on portable devices. Mm-hmm. We already know that we're having those kind of conversations. That simultaneously is going to change the way the government operates. When we if I'm over the age of 65, I go to a hospital, I have Medicare. Uh, there is an enormous operation behind the scenes to separate out who gets paid for what and how to keep track of all the transactions. And the way in which Apple Pay works and when I go to Starbucks will completely transform the way all of that happens and operates as well. So they're huge, huge opportunities. What that really means is that the number of people who are sitting there in a back room filling out forms, those jobs are going to either disappear or go down dramatically. On the mm-hmm. other hand, what's going to happen is that people who can find a way to figure out how to make that work better are going to be in the upswing. The, the people who go out and, and collect and analyze data in terms of just sort of running models, those jobs are going to diminish. But people who have it as it their job try to figure out what does this mean and what can I do with it are going to find a way that, that their jobs, in fact, are increasing. An interesting thing right now. There's a, a big movement in government in particular right now for storytelling. Mm. The, the paradox on the one side of being flooded with more and more and more and more data and with the answer to figure out how to deal with it to find ways of simplifying and simplifying and simplifying and simplifying it it's the translational piece that is the core of the human contribution to this transition and people who know how to do that are in incredible demand Mm -hmm. and so what's really happening is that we sometimes think okay the, the data revolution is coming okay i get that that's going to be more people out there running reports and doing Excel models. No, it's going to mean more people figuring out what it is that those Excel models mean and what to do about it, how to communicate it, and how to try to deal with the big issues that are facing. So, so this, is, this is huge, and it's going to mean a fundamental transformation about the way that government works and a different set of jobs that the people in government are going to have to try to fill. It's going to mean reskilling of substantial numbers of people if we're going to have a government that in fact works well. Now, now, there is an alternative, of course. And the alternative is that everybody says, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to keep mm-hmm. on doing what we have. But, but the the fact that uh, in the private sector, you look around, the, the surest path to oblivion is to ignore the trends that are underway. And you can survive for a while, but eventually what happens is that bad things happen and you end up being <laughs> squeezed to the side. And one of the things that we don't want is a government that has less and less capacity to govern, and that won't be good for anybody. So
0: I think that's a, that's a very interesting um, point, by the way. So I was I was just thinking about this idea of how much government needs to govern, because I think if if, if I if I look at even sir, my uh, 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 sort of working environment today, most of my clients are international. Like I can just log in and I can just deliver like something. I, earlier, I, I remember like. I, Couple of decades back, I can I can imagine that government has a role to play that they are they sort of keep an ecosystem in which businesses could come, establish, thrive. They create sort of an ecosystem in which they can sort of get work workers on that, giving them land where they can live and all that fun stuff. So I can connect with what government role has to play in in sort of in my livelihood and means taking care of, of what's happening around me. But in today's world, I recently went to uh, a small consor- sort of consortium of freelancers and i was talking to those bunch of those those folks and they have less and less respect of what government is doing for them so and 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 then when i i I took this thought and i talked to one of the uh, department of labor executive and i said hey the right now more of our jobs jobs are online right so we just have to log in i don't have to go to a sort of a a, a huge building and start delivering on things many of us are sort of freelancers and that that sort of or, or or maybe consultant or contractors and all that all that sort of and many of the jobs are transforming into an area that businesses even government have no clue on that where the god uh, sort of uh, the new jobs are heading so what is what is your perspective on this this idea ideology of hey i don't see a government doing that much for me then why are they coming every tax year asking me for the same tax <laughs> amount then then sort of a couple of decades back when i really can imagine um, that hey they actually make uh, bring a lot of good businesses in, in in my town so I can be I can be employed so what, what's what's your thought on that yeah
1: and that's, that's a great question because one of the things that is happening is a sense that there's so much energy and so much innovation happening in the private sector that that's where the, the smart stuff is that's what's going to drive the future and on top of that, if government doesn't seem to be keeping up, then there's going to be even more criticism about mm. why, why do we need an outfit that doesn't seem to know what it is that it's doing? But the question is, what is it that really is the core function of government that we really expect government to do? And, and just some things that, that entrepreneurs out there engaging in the most innovative kinds of thought are not going to be able to work very hard or very well if they turn on the tap and there's no water that comes out if it turns out that they don't have reliable electric power. If it turns out that they try to drive to pick up groceries and the bridge collapses. If it turns out that the, 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 the gas that supplies the heat in the middle of the winter has breaks in the lines and the houses blow up. If it turns out that, that the bad guys end up coming in and, and invading the country or even worse in the more realistically perhaps in the shorter run, it turns out that there are people who are out there being entrepreneurial but end up undermining the financial system such that the the money that we have is useless because the system collapses underneath us. It it turns out that on the one hand, we become much more integrated with each other and even government integrated with us, but there's some things that we do expect government to do that we, we frankly take for granted so often, but that really cuts the core of what it is that we really want government to do. And sometimes when it doesn't happen well, we discover pretty quickly that the people in Flint, Michigan, discovered that all of a sudden they turned on the tap and the water was coming out with lead in it and when lead gets in the bloodstreams of kids you can't get it out and it can lead to problems that are permanent that's bad when it turns out that we count on government to do things and government doesn't deliver there are also some some big questions that have to do with uh do we really want in the sphere of, of, of innovation to simply have government get out of the way one of the things we're talking about. If you look, for example, those areas where, for example, coal has been a major source of the economy and jobs for a really long time, and it turns out that people simply are not buying as much coal, Uh, there there are fast food chains now that have more employees than the coal industry in the United States. And so what is it we're going to do for a transformation? You can't say, well, we're going to bring coal back if it turns out that people are moving away from coal because natural gas is, is cleaner and cheaper. And so what do we do for the people who are living in the areas that used to rely on coal? Do we say, well, I mean, it's the private market. You can, we're just sorry, but you just got to find a way to deal with it. Do we help them make the transition? One of the things that happens uh, in a kind of awful paradox is that a lot of the places that have the, the biggest reliance on coal have the worst internet service in the country. And so- we want to try to help people make a transition away from an industry that is uh, that is a fraction of what it used to be. Well, we want to help prepare people for the jobs for the future. How can you do that without good high speed internet? How much of that really relies on a government investment to try to make that happen? So we have the question of what kind of governmental role do we want in making investments to try to drive forward the changes that we want? And. Then ultimately, even though we all hate big government, and we all, none of us like having government tell us what to do, we all count on government providing basic regulations that make sure that, for example, that, that, that the wiring inside our homes is safe, that the, the floors underneath each of us as we're sitting there having this conversation don't collapse, that when a fire breaks out, the fire department is there to put it out. If a bad guy comes in with a gun to a school, we want them stopped immediately. We want to make sure that people who try to steal from us and the financial industry are put behind bars. There's a lot of stuff that governments have been doing for for several thousand years that we still are going to count on government for doing. But the challenge in this information age is how can government be smart enough that on the one hand, it doesn't get in our way and create a lot of costs that only slow us down, but on the other hand, help to try to provide the capacity to make sure that the stuff we do want gets done well and this really i think requires this is pretty exciting but it really requires a fundamental rethinking about what it is that we want government to do i don't think we're at the point where we can do without it nobody in the entire Mm -hmm. history of the world since adam and eve in the garden of eden have been able to deal without government but then what we do have is the challenge of trying to figure out what kind of government do we need and what kind of government is going to work best and that's one of our biggest challenges in the next generation moving forward and something that we need to invest much more time and energy to work on. And it's actually for those of us, I think, in in the, the public policy business, a pretty exciting proposition. What is it that government needs to do to govern effectively in the kind of information-based world in which we're moving?
0: Interesting. No, I think it's 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 a very it's a very interesting topic, by the way. So, um, and this is this is what I think. And, and tell me tell me your perspective on that. That uh, all these sort of uh, this these public policy areas they are they are catered towards sort of localized uh okay the folks in ux the u.s they are they, they are safe they are not hurt and whatever right even in in in, in the case of school shooting let's get more poli- police deployed on the school let's give everyone a gun whatever right it's a, it's a very local solution but if you look at actors that are, dis- that are really could ha- could hurt me are not necessarily going to be in, in the soil they could be someone logging into my facebook feed logging into my sort of right so getting into somehow my my Facebook feed, my LinkedIn feed, my Twitter feed or maybe one of the enterprise which is taking care of my social security numbers, getting into that database, trying to understand what's going on with me and then use that against me. So when all these actors are global, how, why and how sort of we are designing these local sort of uh, infrastructure and saying, okay, we need to make the local so secure and sort of so war chesty and so in 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 your sort of uh, van- from your vantage point when you think about this public policy do you think that um they need to be redesigned uh, considering this new world order that has created that okay now information could be coming in and out from anywhere so why does my um healthcare office or why does my employment office why they just care about my local situation what's happening in the, in in vishal kumar or in, in sort of in that city or town so why don't they just talk, talk about, hey, where these guys are getting employment from? Uh, if they get employment from China, if they're getting employment from, say, Korea, it doesn't matter. It's just, okay, let me energize that area so at least they get a lot more job in and sort of get us some revenue going. So what's, what's your vantage point?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the one of government's toughest problems is to try to figure out what it can do, what it must do, but what it ought to stay out of and how to try to balance mm-hmm. that. And one of the challenges about the information age that we're living in is that some of the most interesting and some of the biggest threats that are popping up are impossible to track down, or at least really hard to track Now, If something bad happens, uh, if, uh, like everybody else, I'm getting a lot of phone calls that seem to be from my area code, but which, of course, are not. I have no idea where they're coming from. Uh, are they coming from the United States, from someplace else? Who's using that kind of software? We've got, We've got this kind of stuff happening in a, on a scale and from sources that we just can't imagine. And there are a lot of people saying, well, why don't we do something about that? Um, what, what about Bitcoin? Is this uh, mm. the whole idea of Bitcoin is to set up a form of financial transactions that are free from government regulations, except that, well, what, what happens if somebody wants to try to start a business backed by Bitcoin? And it's not clear whether or not the Bitcoin is in fact worth anything given The nature of the transactions that lay behind it should should you if you're going to put uh you're going to raise money on the base of other people how do you make sure that they're protected against fraud and that's something that we've been worried about for for 150 years when it comes to financial regulations but now we have new kinds of issues that are bubbling up too on top of that Uh, how do you make sure that if you have uh the the in you want to ensure the integrity of the voting system of the country? that you don't end up compromising it to people from other countries who are trying to undermine our confidence in our democratic systems. How do we make sure that in the interest of free trade, we don't allow people to, to sell phones when it turns out that some of the phones that they're selling may have, whoops, we just discovered little chips on the inside that are secretly recording and sharing information in ways that could undermine our security. How do we make sure that uh, it turns out if you, if you walk by the White House there's uh, a tremendous amount of electronic s- sniffing and spoofing going on from uh, foreign actors, we think, going trying to penetrate what's going on in the inside and what people were talking about on the outside. At, at some point, we really do turn back to government and say, well, we, we, sh- we don't like government, but when it comes to problems like that, we sure expect government to protect and, and try to stop mm. this. And, and the challenge is, in part, redefining what government's role ought to be. Mm. And in part, trying to make sure that government's smart enough so that it can stay ahead of things. Because the the one thing that that seems to me to be a really bad idea is for government always to be running behind, sweeping up the problems and not being smart enough to stay ahead of them. And that is an enormous challenge. It's a matter of trying to figure out how to make sure we don't have government that gets in the way when it comes to those things that we want government to do, that it's smart enough to do it, and it's smart enough to at least try to stay even with the changing game. And not just running behind like uh, somebody at the end of a parade of elephants having to try to sweep up all of this left. That, that's no cure for happiness or government in the 21st century for sure. Interesting.
0: interesting. So that's, that's a very, very interesting point. So if uh, if I'm a public policy officer tasked to design public policy for my administration, what are some of the things you could suggest that um, I, I, I should keep? Uh, what are some of the tactical suggestions that you could give that I should keep a, keep, a, keep a note on? before I started designing that?
1: And I think that's a great question. One of the things that there's actually some, one interesting document that the Trump administration has put out and the president's management agenda that was released in 2018, that's worth a look because there's a game plan in there. And it talks about first the importance of technology and the investment of the right kind of technological systems. We've got to we've got to buy the right stuff so that we can make sure that what we need is what it is that we've got. We've got to develop data systems that allow us to be able to have the right communications about the right issues in the right way, and it turns out that an often hidden but extraordinarily important piece is making sure that we have the right people with the right skills and the right jobs to be able to steer all this stuff. Because if there's anything that we've learned is that the technology doesn't and can't run itself. That the more complex we make our technological systems and the more information that there is, the more important people become in trying to understand, identify, steer, and shape those systems. And so those three crucial elements about getting the technology right, creating the information systems to drive it, but having the people in place who understand what it is that they're doing and how best to do it are the three crucial pieces. And of all those things that so often turn out to be most neglected, it's the people part that turns out to be the the second thought, the last thought, or sometimes not thought about Mm. at all.
0: Interesting. Um, beautiful thought. And I, I think uh, thank you so much. Uh, these are really, really, really cool topics. And and I think I'm 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 feeling like a kid in the candy store. Like we have I I've barely done like one fourth of my question that I wanted to ask you. So it's it's so much fun. So uh, we're we're at the tail end of our conversation. I want to spend some time on your journey. So I think we asked. Um, so if I say what are say one to three best practices that has helped you stay the way you are what would you attribute those those qualities or those best practices to?
1: I'm not sure whether they're best, but one of the things that I've, I've been doing is just first to just to try to have fun and to be able to, to, to keep my eyes and ears open for the things that come up and to materialize. And there's so much new stuff that's happening all the time. It is incredibly exciting, I think. And part of it is trying, connected with that, finding ways of constantly learning about what's going on so that uh, – it's, uh, there needs to be a big dose of humility and understanding that there's a lot that we don't understand. Part of it, I think, next is to make this problem-centered. Uh, it's one of the ways for me to try not to become just a pointy-headed academic is to talk to people all the time and understand what kind of problems are you trying to solve and what seems to be working, and to, instead of trying to drive down a highway at 80 miles an hour, steering by looking in the rearview mirror, uh, it's sort of looking ahead and talking to people who are trying to solve these problems. and But I think also one of the most important things at the core is understanding how important a value set is, especially for those of us working in public policy. There really is something called the public interest. The, the public has mm. a right to be served and to be served well, and it's making sure that every time a problem comes up, that we run it against those important, crucial issues that say, you know what? We've got to make sure that we keep the people in the foreground and make sure that we serve the people first. So I think that it's everything from the values on the one side to a sense of curiosity. And one of the things that's fascinating about this is just finding a way with every new problem that comes up to try to figure new and creative ways of trying to solve them. And that's, that's, pretty, that's a lot of fun.
0: Interesting. And and if if anyone wants to say get uh, attuned to what's happening in the public policy landscape? Like, what are some of the things you could suggest they they could read uh, to get themselves attuned to what's happening?
1: Sure, and a couple of things. As I said, I, I had a lot of fun writing my own book, Little Bites of Big Data. That's 110 pages with lots of charts and pictures and graphs and funny stories and other things as a way to try to get at the process of figuring out what to do. So the little bites of big data is part of it. Uh, part of it i is I'm, I'm really intrigued by a book that was written by Kathy O'Neill called Weapons of Mass, uh, Math Destruction. Math Destruction. Mm. And it's a, it's a study about how it is that data often go wrong and ways in which you can protect yourself from being destroyed by the very data we're trying to collect. And there are some, believe it or not, as I said, some interesting work being done in government. and And the President's Management Agenda for 2018, which is available online, and for the Office of Management budget is worth a read because it's got some really mm. interesting stuff in it. And you may not agree with everything. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you may not agree with where, where the administration is going. But if you take a look at the president's management agenda for people who are cynical about whether or not the government has any clue about what's going on, <laughs> it's reassuring because there are some very serious people thinking very serious thoughts about how to try to move the government forward in the future that is coming.
0: Interesting. Beautiful and, and if, if we say um, about your reading habits, so what are some of the books that 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 you you like reading if you can share with our with our viewers and listeners um, some of the books that that are your, your favorite
1: uh, wow I've got lots and lots of things I, I tend I trying to read everything from things like uh, Frank Fukuyama who's been spending a lot of time worried about whether or not government is in, in the position of being able to govern I, I'd like to read lots of stuff having to do with the founders of the country. And I find myself both fascinated by the problems that they had trying to create the system that we've got. And on the other hand, asking myself whether or not they'd recognize some of the problems that we have now. And I find that a kind of fascinating piece of trying to get at that. But I'm just, I just love reading newspapers too. On top of that, I just, am, I'm just a sponge for following stuff that's going on. And it's and, looking for the stories behind the stories behind the stories that help us really try to understand what's happening. And uh, I'm just really struck by how fast things are changing and how hard it is to really understand what, what the core is. So what my, my current obsession is trying to look at everything from, from the immigrant crisis on the one hand to mm. the problems of technological change on the other, everything from international trade to the problem making the police departments work better, and try to understand the story behind the story behind the story and look for look for common ground and and that's the kind of thing that as i said the the, the founders of the country worried a lot about and they spent some time trying to figure out how to build the foundation and and that's mm. what it is that we can rely on and what makes me hopeful about where it is we're going
0: interesting and i think one thing that that uh, i want to ask you definitely yeah uh, you are you are an observer for public policy you help sort of government understand where to go and when you, when you say talking, reading about newspaper, right? So I think, and I find it sort of uh, very interesting that most of the news is either, uh, so they have a political bias. So if, if you read those news, you get the political bias. How you keep yourself bias free in that, in, in, in that sort of, um, in your research to find the truth.
1: And that really gets to the two points. The first is uh, try to figure out how to make sure you get a, a balanced picture. And I try to read a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff from a lot of different kind of sources. But what I try to do is to, uh, yes, I, I pay attention to the opinion, but I really try to drill down to try to figure out what, what's really going on, to, to try to degree to which I can drill down and get my hands on the facts and try to understand just, just who's doing what. And it turns out that almost always the facts of what are going on is so much more interesting than the mm. rest of it. And that turns out to be enlightening. Just, just one little fact it turns out that, for example, in, in the recent battle over the children separated from their parents at the border, mostly down in Texas, it turns out that people were saying, well, uh, the federal government has custody of, what, 2,000 kids, 3,000 kids. It, it turns out that, in fact, they don't have custody of any of those kids. Mm. You know, they, they seize the children, and then they have this network of contractors in a $1.3 billion program nonprofit organizations that in fact are the ones that have custody of these kids operating under a series of regulations by state governments and that the size of the agency in charge of managing all this stuff, it's got 96 people in it.
0: Mm. And
1: so if you want to understand what's really going on, you got to understand the way that things actually operate there. That I think is fascinating. And so getting beyond the question of of the biased news and the rest is getting down to the facts, which I think often are much more interesting. But that gets to the second problem, which I think is a a large and growing issue. For for anybody interested in data, there's a question of, what do you do about this argument about fake news? And Mm. it has a direct connection to all of us who care about data. Because here's the way the argument goes, uh, that people have biases. There are lots and lots of data out there. If there are lots and lots of data, they can be interpreted in lots of different kinds of ways. People tend to interpret the data in ways that favor their own position. And so there are some people who say, I don't believe anything because I am sure that whatever it is I read, is just people trying to spin a story based on their own values and not based on the data. And what's happening, I think, is that the more data that we've got, the more cynical people become about it. And Mm. for people interested in data and where data are going, that is a really serious problem because we started our conversation by asking, why should I believe and how can I best use the data that I've got? And if it turns out that the assumption is, well, you're just going to use whatever it is that serves your own purpose, then you start out by undermining the very proposition that you're trying to move toward. And the more data that we have, the bigger problem that's going to be. So people look at President Trump and they either like or don't like his arguments about fake news, but but make no mistake. There's something very important going on there. And what's Mm. important going on is the fact that we don't trust the facts and we assume that Mm. all the facts are things that are spun. And so what we have to do is understand that if we're interested in data, we've got to try to get past that because there is this growing cynicism that any fact I give you is a fact that you are sure that I've just picked randomly to support my own point of view. How do we get, get past that? And the fact is that we first have to be carefully attuned to the data that come out and be really good problem solvers to understand, am I being spun? I mean, do I believe the data that I'm seeing? How do we train people not only to do the analysis, but to understand whether or not they're being spun as they're looking at it? There's a the question of how to try to find ways of, of making sure that you can collect data from lots of different kinds of sources and present it in a way that, that creates the sense of balance. There is the way in which data are presented. And if, for example, we, we move from, uh, from big piles of numbers or individual factoids to, for example, integrating data sets and presenting them on maps, that creates a way to try to create information that is, I think, more believable. And if most importantly, we just confront the fact that, look, I, I know that there are problems with this. Mm-hmm. I've got a problem I'm trying to solve. Here's what the facts, as best I can tell, can try to point me in the right direction about I'm going to use that to try to improve decisions. But then the proof is in my ability to be able to produce results. If I don't produce results, then, then that's a problem. So as opposed to, I've got bias in understanding the problem. On the other hand, if we use the data to try to solve problems that people care about, people know and recognize and appreciate that difference. And, and that's the ultimate test on all of this. But, but we have to confront directly the problem mm. of fake news because it really gets to a much bigger issue for those of us who care about the use of data not only in public policy but in society more generally
0: i think it's uh, i think your response is a testament of how, how seriously you take uh keeping yourself bias free and i think it's, uh, it's I, I do sort of uh, want to emphasize our, our listeners and viewers too that even in data space it's very easy to be biased i think it's as uh, like it's just as beautiful as what you want the stats to convey they'll convey and that's why I think it's it's extremely important to have all the sides of the views. And I think you pointed really beautifully that having that data is really helpful. So as a last question, but not the least. So if um, I, I, I ask our, our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be your closing remark to our listeners and viewers?
1: I guess that the last point is that this is incredibly exciting and it requires the very best imagination that we've got. It's easy to present data as a scary thing, but it is at the core the fact that it is a people thing, that, that the more data that we've got, the more information that we have surrounding us, the more battles are over what to believe, the more important all of us as individuals are. And we have to train ourselves, equip ourselves. With the right kind of tools to understand it. We have to make sure that we still have the right kind of, of, of vision and, and prism for understanding the values at the core. So it's this fundamental paradox that we need to have data to solve real world problems. We need to focus on not only the supply side, but the demand side, and understand just how fundamentally important people are in the middle of a world that's more and more full of data. And I find that really exciting there's there's all this argument in fact about artificial intelligence and data somehow taking the people out of this that we're losing control uh, the reality is that if we if we play it smart, it'll be people more in the center than they have ever been and that I think is ultimately the most exciting piece of this
0: beautiful and with that um, thank you so much John. I think it, it these there's a lot of lot of int- very interesting stuff for our listeners and viewers and thank you so much for spending a generous amount of time with our listeners and viewers and sharing your insights. You're always welcome back on the podcast. And I think, as I said, I've barely covered scratch. You, and you said <laughs> it. You, it's barely scratching the surface. So we actually barely scratched the surface. So I do appreciate your sharing your insights and thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, it's been fun. It's been great talking to you. As you say, this the good thing about this field is we're not going to run out of things to talk about anytime soon. <laughs> so thanks for the chance to share it with you today. Awesome. I uh,